Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We want to keep you guys up on the literature. We want to help you guys stay smart. And to do that, we spoon-feed you. If you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a journal feed subscriber, and so you will not be receiving the full journal feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, all good articles, but if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And remember, we never want money to be a barrier to better patient care. So if you're having trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch. We'll help you out. This is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which were brought to you by our authors, Jacob Atholtz, Ketan Patel, Christian Gerhalt, and Clay Smith. So here's the first article titled Bag Valve Mask Ventilation and Survival from Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, a Multi-Center Study out of the journal Circulation. I don't personally do any pre-hospital work, but I think a lot of the pre-hospital studies can inform our practices. Since, although they're in a less controlled environment and we have more personnel, the same principles pretty much apply. Now, this was a secondary analysis of the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium, ROC, trial of continuous compressions versus standard CPR in patients with OCA. This reanalysis looked at the quality of bag valve mask ventilation using defibrillator bioimpedance data to replace proper measurements of ventilation volumes, which you could only really get from a ventilator. Though the original trial looked at continuous compressions and compared them against standard compressions, this reanalysis only looked at standard 30 to 2 CPR, and then were able to include 2,000 patients. Any ventilation over 250 milliliters was considered adequate. They compared the cohort by dividing them into two groups, one group receiving adequate ventilations at least 50% of the time, and the other group doing worse than that. If you're familiar with how hard BVM actually is, despite the hubris of many, then the fact that 40% of this group were ventilated properly at least 50% of the time doesn't actually sound overly bad to me. I mean, like, don't get me wrong, it's kind of abysmal, but it's just not terribly surprising. The group with the better ventilations had markedly better outcomes, including pre-hospital and anytime ROSC, survival to hospital discharge, and survival with good neurological outcomes. Does everyone remember the COCARC study from 2002 and the systematic review we covered in 2021 looking at the various ways that you can have airway control and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? Well, I'll remind you then, the COCARC study, which is a much larger trial than this one, showed equivalency between advanced airways and BVM for OCUS. And the review that I just mentioned as well weakly implied that BVM might be the best airway option for OCA. To me, combined with how bad we are at BVM, shows how dangerous mucking around with advanced airways can really be. Essentially, our best airway option, BVM, and we don't even ventilate them properly half of the time, and it's still our best option. BVM is a very essential skill and it's worth honing any time you get the chance, both pre-hospital and even when they arrive to the hospital. Now, there is a lot of room for selection bias here, but we're never going to be randomizing patients to inadequate ventilation, so we're just going to have to live with the data that we have. In a spoonful, we are terrible at BVM, providing adequate ventilations less than half of the time. But when done right, it does seem to significantly help our patients. And then we skip to the fifth article. 
Titled Nirmatrivir, Ritonavir, and COVID-19 Mortality and Hospitalization Among Patients with Vulnerability to COVID-19 Complications out of the JAMA Network Open. Let's try the other end of the spectrum, vulnerable COVID-19 patients. After all, these are the patients that we most expect to benefit from treatments like this. Or the ones we most hope to benefit. These are the patients who might actually die from these diseases, and these are the cases in which we might be able to save lives. This was an observational population-based study looking at mortality and hospitalization in nearly 7,000 Canadian adults with various vulnerabilities to severe disease. It was a pretty recent sample, over a year's worth of data, starting from February 2022. The patients were divided into four groups according to their priority to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Group 1 had severe immune impairment. Group 2 had moderate impairment. Group 3 had normal immune systems but had high-risk medical conditions. And the last group didn't have anything extreme but still had some high-risk features like being older than 70 years old or being unvaccinated. Patients who received Paxlovid were matched with other patients in their vulnerability group in order to compare rates of mortality and hospitalizations due to COVID-19 within 28 days. And it worked! There was a statistically significant reduction in the most vulnerable group, 2.5% less, as well as the second group, 1.7% less. If you're a member and you heard the article just previous to this, then you're thinking, wow, that's a lot less effect than was seen in the other study. Curious, just curious, just think about that. The other two groups of less vulnerable patients did not have a significant difference in mortality or hospitalization. So it looks like there's some effect of Paxlovid at least in the most vulnerable, but not in the healthier patients. And the effect it did have was much less than that seen in the original EPIC-HR study. Frankly, even with propensity matching, there are some things you just can't control for. Like the fact that just to receive Paxlovid, you had to be on or be able to stop certain medications. You might remember that the list of medication interactions is massive with Paxlovid. So it's hard to say how similar these patients really are. It's not clear that this was specifically accounted for in the study, and I suspect it was not. To be honest, all these not amazing trials come out showing some effect, maybe, but randomized data wasn't even that strong or has been negative. So I'm obviously still not sold on Paxlovid, but if it does have an effect, I think it would be a positive effect. And the experts are still recommending it, so I think it's still fair to give. In a spoonful, high-risk patients with COVID-19 likely benefit from Paxlovid. But we've always thought that to be the case from the original studies. Healthier patients, who are still a little bit vulnerable, did not seem to benefit. All right, that's it. That's all our article. Let's do a quick wrap-up. What did we learn today? From the first article, don't neglect your BVM skills. They save lives, and they probably need some love. And then for the last article, Paxlovid for the frail. Same as always, guys, it seems to be beneficial in the highest risk patients and not necessarily the rest. Again, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not part of the members feed. And so you missed three articles from this past week. One was about how to examine a neck. The next one was about rabies exposures and what to do with them. And the last was more on Paxlovid. Maybe it does do some good. 
Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.